Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I'm Emma Jacobs, Working Careers Feature Writer. Joining me today is Daniel Cable, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School. Hi, Emma. Hi. We're here to talk about your new book, Alive at Work. Who's it for? Hmm. Think number one, it's for leaders that want to get employees feeling zestful about work and about change. I would love for it to be something that we all understand about how our brains work and about how we can feel that all that time that we spend at work is part of real life. So you think the real life's the bit around it? What I'm worried about is lots of people, including myself at certain stages in my life, saw work as a commute to the weekend. It was something to kind of get through, almost like you'd hold your breath on a Sunday night and then push yourself through the steps so that you could get to not doing that thing. So is it for people that have to coax others through that feeling or is it for me feeling dead on a Sunday sort of thing? What I tried to do is write it so that it would be relevant to both. But what it really holds up is what leaders can do and specifically in three very specific sections. So number one, you can help people understand who they are when they're at their best and try to get them to play to that at work. That's one. That seems to light up part of our brain. Uh, the second one is this idea about experimentation and trying to push on the limits of what you know. That lights up this part of the brain as well. And then the third part is this why of work that goes beyond the money. So when you see the impact of something you do on another human being or on the environment, you get this thrill, this dopamine release. And I think that one of the more interesting things that I learned over the last two years is that a lot of what we call engagement is a biological phenomenon, whereas I always viewed it as a motivational problem or a psychological problem. Were you, are you alive at work? I am now. <laughs> Were you dead at work before? I went through a stage where I was operating unconsciously and kind of going through the steps of work, and you might even say mailing it in. And on paper, it looked great. I think that the difference is how it feels. And I think it has a lot to do with repetition and routine and being rewarded for producing the same sorts of output repetitively. How did you change it? I mean, how did you come to the point that you wanted to change something? Well, the best answer is that I got really sick. <laughs> I had the privilege of becoming really sick. Um, I don't think there's a more honest answer. I believe that I knew something was fishy when at about age 35, I started thinking too much about retirement and started thinking about how long do I have to do this and, and even talking with friends that way. So I sort of heard echoes of strangeness, but mm. I didn't quite realize what it meant. And then I think when I had the opportunity to be really sick and to think about if you weren't going to be around much longer, what would you do? And what that allowed happen is all these stories that were running around my head, stories that we all have in our heads about why we do what we do. You know, what's the purpose of it? 
I think that that helped elucidate some of that. And how did you fix it? I mean, you talk in the book about the seeking system. Could you explain a bit more about what that means? Sure. The seeking system. Let's talk about that first. This is a part of our brain. I call it the seeking system because a neuroscientist named Jak Penksepp calls it that. He and some others think about these different systems that urge us to do certain things. You also could call it the ventral striatum. I have a feeling that Seeking System might sell yeah. more books. I don't <laughs> prefer that one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's call it the Seeking System. And this particular part of our brain or circuit, it seems to urge us to experiment, play around, and learn new things. From a really early age, babies gravitate toward the things that are new and shiny that they don't understand. And it seems to be innate. It seems to be built in. And when we follow those urges gives us a hit of dopamine, which is very satisfying. It's a pleasurable feeling, but it also induces us to do that more. And so that part of the brain exists. All, um, Not only all humans have that, all mammals have that. Like I learned this one thing, that animals in the zoo really prefer to find their food. They don't really prefer to be given it on a plate. They like to go seek it. So that's kind of interesting. So this part of the brain exists. And then if you ignore it, which lots of organizations have reward and punishment systems that deal a lot with routine and repetition. And if you aren't efficiently repeating the prescripted activity, there's a punishment in store. And if you do the prescribed activity very, very efficiently, there's a reward in store. This tends to shut down this part of the brain, which means it shuts off the dopamine. There's a lot of problems with that. So that seems to be a biology. And that biology is something that, let's say, Henry Ford saw as a bug. It was a problem. Yeah. It was something to tamp down. And you could do that with extrinsic motivations by like doubling the average wage, but then threatening to fire people if they didn't do it perfectly. The world's now changing a bit quicker. Organizations need more creativity. They sort of need more zest. They need more innovation. They need more engagement. They need more thinking like owners. And I think that that's why this is a really interesting time to think about activating that part of a brain instead of shutting it off. Do you think that uh, when I was reading your book, I was struck by it and I was thinking uh, a lot of it was sort of, yes, I like experimentation. Yes, I'm a curious person. But then I thought that there were people that I know that like routine, they feel safe in systems. So I wondered how this applied to them. If I just start with what we know and then move toward our wall of our ignorance, um, what we seem to know is that everybody would have a seeking system, for sure. I think it's the case that personalities do develop across time, though. And I think it's the case that, for example, anxiety and fear is another system. And it's certainly powerful. Um, I think we could argue more powerful in the sense that bad is stronger than good. And so the worry of what might go wrong can loom larger than the sort of excitement of what can go right. And maybe there are some people that lean that way, um, even naturally. I think that that is possible. I also think it's possible that you take somebody that comes out of college full of Vim and vigor. Do we still use that phrase? <laughs> don't know if we do. Let's pretend, let's pretend we do. <laughs> we can now. And they think that they've got good ideas. And they think maybe people will even want to hear those ideas. You know, they're full of optimism and hope. But three years later... <laughs> grounded. <laughs> grounded. <No>. Right out. <laughs> Hooray for work. <laughs> I hear that you're talking about managers wanting to kind of engage their staff and There's much more discussion about passion and and all these. I'm not sure how I think about passion at work and all these kind of of terms that are much more fashionable now than they might have been, you know, Taylorism times kind of thing. And maybe even in the 70s. Then there's people that are being controlled much more. If I think about the gig economy, that's the direction 
in terms of technology that we're being controlled more by devices and platforms. That's right. And so in some ways, those systems have hyped up. And I just wonder if there's a kind of split in jobs in terms of those mm. that are allowed to be alive at work mm. and those that aren't. It's sort of like a creative apartheid, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I really see what you're saying. With the gig economy in particular, it's not as though I have worked through all the ramifications of that. I can say that um, there's a great researcher named Gian Piero Patrigliani, at INSEAD that has done some incredible work on the gig economy and has thought about how it's the agony and the ecstasy. And so the ecstasy of that would be that you really are able to self-express. You're able to take on the work and create what you want to create in a sort of micro-entrepreneurship sense. I think that the sense of purpose when you're making the calls and you're directly serving the client I think that is very likely activating the seeking system. I think that serial entrepreneurs are probably addicted to the dopamine mm. that the seeking system would deliver, much like a, a gambler. So my guess is that there are some ecstasies to it that are high highs, but then you're bringing up that there are some frames and controls and structures around it that would tend to make it seem very micro that the day-in and day-out activities might seem very repetitive. So I, I think that would be a great area to think more about and to research, but I don't have great answers for that one now. If I'm a manager, say, yeah. how might I think about the workplace to try and change some of these employee engagement? Yeah, yeah. I think that the three things that I would look at are, number one, do the people I work with have a strong sense of the why that goes beyond the money? So that's the notion of... Do they feel that the work is meaningful in a way that is bigger than putting a roof over my head and sort of paying for the kids' school? If the answer is no, there are really low-cost ways to increase that. For example, get them to talk to the people they serve more. So put them in direct touch with the people that use the output of their work. And whether they're doing programming or they're a call center or if they're you know doing traffic engineering or doing programming, whatever that might be, somebody's using that output and sort of getting them in touch with who uses it can really help. So that's one. A second one is this idea about are people feeling as though they can be their best at work? And I don't mean 24 hours a day. I mean a little bit every day. And so there's little things that you can do to kind of help people highlight who they are when they're at their best. We did this one little study and described in the book where we went into a call center, which is often seen as pretty grim work. And it's often pretty scripted. But on the very first hour that they got hired, on their very first day of work, the leader just asked them to reflect on times that they've been their very best, times that they were, you know, accomplishing the most that they could with life, in or out of work, it didn't matter. And then they got a chance to write about that and then share that with their new colleagues. And we found that just that little activity, which really didn't take any money, affected both how long they stayed with the employer and how happy they made customers six months later. So it didn't cost any money, but it, I think it created a different frame of employment. The idea that, oh, people here think about me as a human and not just a number. And, oh, these people that will be my colleagues got to know something real about me and kind of me at my best instead of sort of me as another call center operator. So that's a second example. And a third one has to do with experimentation and play. You know, an example of this one might be um, in the book I describe at KLM where a senior manager wanted to It's a very good example. It's a really fun example. Yeah. And again, didn't cost a lot of money, but this 
team of eight people got to play around with social media. And they made a really big splash in three weeks. Not because the boss told them, hey, go do this. The boss said, hey, go play with social media. Here's 10,000 euro. And they made a big splash. Some of the employees made a big negative splash. Some of them made a big positive splash. But there was an impact that they got to see. And then they all got to sit around and say, okay, what worked and what didn't work? What can we learn from that? I think you talk about the Google 20% in this context as well. That's right. You need experimentation, but within boundaries, and it needs to come up with some end result. Otherwise, it's just free-flowing fun all the time, and doesn't seem to work, is that? Yeah, the freedom in the frame is the concept that seems really relevant Mm. here. And the idea maybe is that if you have 500 engineers and you give them all 20% of their time, They're coming up with great, interesting, weird new ideas. And then maybe the senior management, maybe teams of engineers would self-select into three or four or maybe five of those different things that they really want to pursue and then throw a lot of weight behind it. Might work great if you have 500 engineers. Maybe if you have 17,500 engineers, there's loads of ideas. There's loads of flowers shooting up everywhere, but nobody's really harvesting those flowers. And so they don't go anywhere. So I do think there has to be a balance between playfulness, meaning learning new things and pushing boundaries, and the frame of delivering. Customer commitments have to be met. Regulations have to be abided by. Policies of organizations have to be upheld. And I think that that's a really healthy and interesting way to think of it because it's a tension. It's not a solution where you say, oh, you know, let your people be free and yeah. they'll create great things. What they might create is chaos, and then the organization folds because it can't put enough direction in everybody's steps. I interviewed recently Patty McCord, the former chief talent officer or head of HR at Netflix, and she is very down on terms like employee engagement because she thinks that it misses the point that you're not at work to have fun. If I keep talking about engagement. It's infantilizing employees. Do you disagree with that? Well, the part of it that I can at least resonate with is the idea that you need high performance. I think that it is hyper competitive. And I think the idea of being relaxed could get organizations into a lot of trouble. So I think that's part one. So there's agreement there. As organizations need to change and adapt and be agile, putting a lot of pressure on doing exactly what you're told or else creates a fear-based environment. And it's no secret at this point that a fear-based environment focuses people. It makes them very, very focused on high levels of efficiency, but it is not a creativity maker. You talk at one point about the arrogance, which I'm now going to see everybody through a different prism, arrogance of leaders as being a kind of learned form of helplessness because they don't want to admit to what they don't know and so it's fear that's kind of propelling their behavior. That's right and I think that's a little broader as well but if we start with the leaders kind of symbolizing and and maybe even modeling this behavior it's the idea that you sort of march around with extreme confidence in terms of how you act But inside, of course, you don't really know how to act and you don't really know what the customers want and you don't know how that change initiative is going to work when it hits the ground. But you've created a culture where asking for help is vulnerable and we're saying, I'm not sure, let's see what happens, comes off as lack of confidence. 
it ends up being a culture that doesn't learn. It ends up being a culture where everybody parades around feeling uncertain but acting arrogant. And I think there is a sort of learned helplessness in there. Uh, I wouldn't bet on those organizations in the future. I wouldn't bet on an organization that couldn't adapt and that couldn't cope with uncertainty and that couldn't listen to customers, but also listen to frontline employees who are solving real problems. Just before we go, I don't think you've told me (laughs) how you changed your mindset. Yeah, I'm going to say that the most important part is this why. Mm. I think the why of the work is where a lot of this starts. If you think of your job as how does your body move, that's called a low level of construal. So you could say, for example, my job is to show up in a classroom because that's part of the job. And then it's to move my mouth while people sit. And it's to move my mouth speaking about best practices and human resources. That's a way of framing your job and sort of giving best practices. And it may be accurate, it may be true. It also is possible for you to walk in the classroom and be thinking about, how do I help these people get more living out of life? How do I help people understand how much you would fight for one more day as it was being dragged away from you? Now, that lens, which is very optional, you don't have to think that you're doing that. But it is possible to walk in and use the same platform and the same stage and even the same job title and reframe it around something that you find compelling or true or authentic. And I think that that is, at least for me, where this starts. The idea of starting with the why of the work is really incredibly important, I think. But I would also say this notion of playing to strengths is interesting. I think that if you treat the end point of the goal in terms of inspiring and teaching, for example, how you get to there is you have a lot of freedom a lot of times in terms of how you deliver the material and how you speak and how you put together slides and whether or not you use exercises. I think that that's really interesting for each of us to look at our work and say, if those are the outputs that I need to create, that's the frame of the job. What's the freedom that I have to really emphasize what I do best? And what really turns me on. And then this final part about experimentation, I think it might be the trickiest. Experimenting means I'm going to try it, but it might not go well. The idea of I have mastered a certain craft that I know I could do almost unconsciously. That's why I'm not going to do it that way. That's why I'm going to twist it. And I'm going to push on the edge of the way I've done it in the past. And I'm going to try to push on a boundary of what I understand to work. And just see if I get a different cause effect than what I was expecting. And I feel like because the biology, meaning the seeking system, will not only get turned on, it will reward us for doing this with these hits of dopamine. One last thing I'd like to say about dopamine that I've noticed in my own world, and I think lots of us do, dopamine changes our time regulation. It affects the way we perceive time. So when you aren't activating the seeking system and you're not receiving these hits of dopamine, time (laughs) crawls by It grinds by like a sledge across stones. It just feels like minutes or hours. And that feeling of just yearning for your lunch break, just so you can get away from what you're doing, that's a feeling that many people live with. And I think that that's tragic. When dopamine is flowing, it's really interesting how not only does work feel exciting and not only does time seem to speed right by, it's also the case you want more. And that feeling is... I think it's 
it's a golden age of human emotions <laughs> to the extent that firms want to create that feeling. Are you in it yourself? Yeah, often, <laughs> maybe three times a day. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.